0: Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the Gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. If you've only been listening to this podcast occasionally, I want to ask you right up front to please be sure to listen to this episode and the next one, because it's a two-parter. Neither of them are really complete without the other. Go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to the Christian Civics podcast today so that you'll be sure to get the next episode as soon as it's released. In just a few minutes, I'm going to share a conversation I had recently with D, a missionary who has spent eight and a half years in Bosnia. Bosnia is a former Soviet country with a political system that is really different from ours in some major ways. And D and I started out with him just explaining how the Bosnian political system works. And then we went on to talk about the state of church persecution in the country. And finally, we brought all of it back around to a conversation about how living in Bosnia for almost a decade has changed the way that he thinks about U.S. politics and government as a Christian. This is a long one, but it's worth sticking around for. He made some points at the end that have especially stuck with me. This conversation ended up being almost 40 minutes long. Because it's so long, and because we don't want to take up all of your time, we're not going to bring you anything else on this episode, just the interview. In our next episode— We'll follow up on some of the most interesting parts of the interview and talk about what they might mean for Christians living in the U.S. today. We'll get into the state of the persecuted church around the globe, the future of church persecution in the U.S., and the difference between government and politics, and why that difference is so important. We'll get that episode to you a little earlier than usual, so keep your eyes peeled for it. And now, without further ado. Let's get to it. Can you explain for me a little bit about the context of Bosnia's society and government? Uh, what is it like, and how did it get there?
1: Sure. Um, basically, the Bosnian government was uh, formed or part of the part of former Yugoslavia after World War II, 1945. And um, it was governed by a communist dictator called Marshal Tito, and um, it, as Yugoslavia began to, um, as different countries or states within Yugoslavia began to secede, it caused several wars to erupt, with the worst one in Bosnia uh, from early 1992 to the, December of '95, almost into 1996. And so Bosnia experienced a terrible civil war um, between three ethnic and religious groups: one, one were, were the Croatian Catholics, uh, Serb Orthodox, and Bosnian Muslims. <clears throat> and they all fought each other, and a lot of people died. Concentration camps uh, in the heart, like in the heart of Europe, um, rape camps, villages burned. Um, hundreds of thousands of people killed, uh, all of that in the 90s in Europe. So pretty crazy. And then after the war was over, there was a forced um, peace accord signed in Dayton, Ohio, uh, by the then President Bill Clinton and the respective presidents from the different three warring parties in Bosnia. And uh, ever since then, they've tried to form a coalition government between the people that were killing each other yesterday and are trying to live at peace now. That's been going on for about the last 20 years uh, with very poor success. Um, Many people say that Dayton was to stop a war and not to form a government, which is absolutely correct. So the government today in Bosnia is corrupt and non-functioning. And um, it's probably one of the least functioning governments in all of Europe, on par with some uh, African countries and uh, the Middle East and Asia.
0: Now, what do you give us some examples of what you mean when you say least functioning? Because I think especially for uh, I know for me, who I grew up in the U.S. in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, my idea when I think of. Poorly functioning government. I think of a broad, generalized gridlock, but still something that's pretty relatively stable. I, uh, sure. I I, my, I still have confidence that like <laughs> my fire department is still going to get paid. Uh, so is that about what you mean when you say poorly functioning government in Bosnia?
1: Well. I think one example, or I'll give you one or two examples um, of why it's not functioning. Okay, we live in the 21st century. If I want to go down to the, um, the municipality to get a birth certificate or something like that, there's a lady looking at me in 2000, the year 2017 that asks, for, first of all, I have to wait in an insane long line, and then she grabs a book off of a shelf. That she has to flip to page two thousand two hundred forty nine to find my name. No computer uh, in the office, and then she has to go to a filing cabinet, pull out a birth certificate, go copy it on a Xerox copy machine, come back. I have to pay, take it, pay it, pay for the certificate in, in a different building, come back, and walk out three hours later with my birth certificate um, in two thousand seventeen in a Western European country, or I mean a European country. Uh, another example would be in 1999, they started this um, uh, highway, the the only uh, highway in the country um, between the two biggest cities of Sarajevo and another city called Zenica. It's 30 miles long. In 1999, they poured in millions of dollars in euros to f- finish this tiny little stretch of highway. Um, it's 2017, and there's still two miles left to go. <laughs> um, where the money on, went what happened. Almost is, uh, 20 years. Yeah, almost 20 years to build 30 miles. That's just the one. These are visible examples. Of, if I get hit by a car, um, unless it's a really big problem, like it's, if it's a fender bender or if, I don't know, if my mirror gets knocked off or something, like, I'm not going to call the cops. I'm just going to try to settle it with the guy right there and then because if I try to call the cops, then it's just going to be a nightmare, a bureaucratic nightmare. So bureaucracy is very, very bad. Uh, then let's talk about the the rotating presidency. It's a country that rotates uh, coalition presidents every nine months. Um,
0: nine months. And in order
1: for this president to be liked by his people, he has to demonize the other two ethnic groups. And they're they're being demonized on religious grounds and ethnic grounds. So you're, basically, the Serb is going to be saying something like, well, the Muslims are trying to push us off of our sacred uh, motherland, and we need to fight for Serbia. And then this Croatian guy is going to say, you know, uh, we are Catholics, and we need to protect our sacred monasteries. And and then the Muslims are gonna be like, we Muslims have been here for 600 years and our mosques were destroyed during the war and we need to fight for our sacred motherland. And all this rhetoric goes on and in the meantime, roads are not being built, hospitals are not being stocked with uh, the right uh, medicine. And uh, Western money has all but departed, like hardly any money has been left. So the German banks have re- re- drawn away uh, their support and, Europe and Bosnia is not even close to even being on the road to joining the EU, which, if Americans don't know this, uh, being part of the EU is a great thing for most countries, especially little tiny countries like Bosnia, uh, because it helps them govern, it helps them build roads, it helps them meet standards, and it gives some kind of oversight to, to the uh, corruption that is now rampant um, in this tiny, isolated country.
0: Hmm. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what you mean when you say kind of an unstable, when it's called an unpredictable government or unstable. Um, let's talk a little bit about the state of the church there. You've mentioned that the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church have uh, prominent constituencies in the kind of rotating coalition government. Uh, what yes. about the Protestant Church, the Evangelical Church? What is um, the status of the Church in Bosnia that you were working with for eight and a half years?
1: Yeah, well, they, uh, they, the Gypsies and the Jews have no voice in the government whatsoever. So, if you are not one of the three main major constituents, uh, if you're not a Muslim, an Orthodox or a Catholic, you have uh, no seats anywhere in the in Let's call it parliament, or you cannot be a president if you're an evangelical. <laughs> hmm. You cannot be uh, part of the, uh, the government um, as a non serb Muslim, or Croat. So politically, completely marginalized. Uh, they're pretty much, they, they have a church, uh, uh, an approved uh, ability to have churches registered. Uh, but we, we don't get, like, um, tax deductions or anything like that. But you can just register as a church, an evangelical church, um, if you meet certain criteria. Like, you have to have five, um, 500 signatures or 500 members. You have to have a building. You have to have this, this, and that. And most churches in Bosnia, and there are about 14 evangelical churches that we know of, uh, give or take, because some of them have closed and uh, over the years. Um The average membership is about 30 to 40 people. So you're looking at about roughly 500 to 700 believers in the country, or what we would call evangelical believers. And um, what they had to do is they had to just call one building, the church, and register 500 people, even though they belong to 10 different churches, as the church in order to get recognized by the government (laughs) as a church or as a church faith community that has the status of a, of a religious entity uh, in the country. So they do exist. They have their registered churches, and they have their locations where they these believers meet, but they're very much marginalized and not part of the uh, political discussion.
0: You say they're marginalized. Uh, in what ways does that marginalization uh, manifest itself?
1: Um. Well, like I said they're not part of uh, any government position they can't you can't be an evangelical and uh, there are no parties like like I don't know the Christian Democrat party or something mm-hmm. like that so in terms of the government and politics they they're not they don't exist at all there's not a single evangelical Christian as far as I know and I know a lot about the who is where and what doing what because it's a small, uh, a Christian community and everybody knows everybody. So as far as we know, there's nobody in politics or government that that is an evangelical Christian or at least a open evangelical Christian. And uh, so we're not represented in terms of culture, in terms of uh, involvement in society, um, there is a little bit of visibility, because of western support so you will have ngos like samaritan's purse providing four or five hundred christmas packages to these churches they will put on a little puppet show or something like that and distribute about 500 to a thousand christmas gifts to local muslim kids and so the church will be a place that people will know exists because of these humanitarian packages uh, for kids, they have also other programs like Missions Without Borders um, that provide a couple hundred food packages to, the, to ch- local churches, and then they will distribute that to needy families. So, in a social sense, uh, they do have a little bit of a ring in society because they provide these um, ministries of help and goodwill. Um, but again, this is very much tied to Western help, oh. uh, money coming from, from the West, and nothing really is generated from within. And as soon as these uh, these ministries leave Bosnia, which they're, they've been announcing for now four years that they will be leaving, and it's going to happen any year now, uh, the Bosnian church on its own is not going to be able to sustain that, and they will drift back into the shadows even more.
0: hmm And for people that are evangelized, for people that do come to a saving faith in Christ through the ministry of these Bosnian evangelical churches, um, what is that process like for them coming to faith in a country that is, uh, where Christians are a vast minority and um, don't have access to the levers of power? Is it nonetheless a pretty smooth transition, uh, or smooth conversion process or,
1: uh, It depends on who you are. Um, if you are a strong member of one of those three ethnic groups that I mentioned, Serbs, Serb Orthodox, Catholic Croatians, or Bosnian Muslims, uh, it's going to be very, very tough for you to change your religion. Because changing a religion is uh, um, spitting on the graves of your ancestors who died for you to be uh, Orthodox, a Catholic, or a Muslim, and uh, so you're not just changing religion, your religions. You are betraying your people um, who died for you, kind of a thing. So the stakes are really, really high um, to to become a follower of Christ uh, in, a, in an evangelical sense. Um, now, it, if you are a believer an evangelical believer in Bosnia, it's very, very highly likely that you either came from a mixed marriage where identities were watered down, where the family said, "Son, you can be a Muslim or you can be a Catholic. It doesn't really matter. Your mom is Catholic, I'm a Muslim, but we don't really we're not really that serious about our faith. So mixed marriages perhaps will leave a, door open for people to convert to uh, evangelical Christianity uh, or just completely marginalized people. The Romas that don't really have a strong um, ethnic identity in a religious sense uh, or drug addicts. uh, And I'm mentioning people groups that are actually part of these uh, Bosnian churches. We have a large Roma church. We have a very strong Uh, ex-drug addict community that's part of our church churches and we have very 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 few you can count them on maybe one hand or two hands at the most people who actually come from this middle strong ethnic identity layer that that are now active members of the evangelical church and those among those five to ten people uh you're looking at a minority of those that came to the Lord in the last 10 years. The majority of conversion happened uh, in that liminal period right after the war. The period that was not um, where things were loose. You just survived a war and you're kind of trying to figure out what is life all about? Who are you? What are you? And um, a good number of people converted during that terrible aftermath of the war. But once the dust settled, people chose their identity and their sides of who they are and who they belong to, mainly. Uh, conversions conversions drastically dropped. And we have seen very, very few people come to the Lord in the last decade.
0: Okay. And it sounds like, aside from... Like the majority of the people that came were from groups that were already marginalized, already kind of cut off from... Yes. The, the
1: last decade of conversions are mainly marginalized people
0: and um before we started recording you were telling me a little bit about what the conversion experience is like for people who are coming to christ in bosnia from um one of those well-established entrenched uh privileged groups either yeah uh, oh, yeah
1: i know of two examples personally um I am mainly involved in the Muslim to Christian conversion realm because I lived in a 97% uh, majority Muslim t- uh, city, um, whereas some other parts of Bosnia uh, might be 85% Catholic. So it just depends where you live. But anyway, in my context, I've had experiences with two, uh, uh, you know, real Muslim background people exploring Christ, and one young man in his mid-twenties uh, was very, very close to making a decision and going against his family's uh, wishes to be become a follower of Christ. And he had an argument that day and he left the house and he was going to come to church. And before he arrived, there were two vehicles filled with four or five adult males with sticks and clubs uh, standing in front of the church. Uh, well, part of them left, stayed in the car, but a few of them got out of their cars and they were standing in front of the church and they said, um, anybody that like lets our child, like if our child shows up, if our, our cousin shows up and you let him into this church, there will be trouble. So they basically barred the, the, the gate of the church for this individual to be able to walk into the church. He never actually showed up that day. Hmm. Maybe he knew I was waiting for him. But shortly thereafter, we no longer saw him. He started pulling away. Uh, He he canceled his cell phone number. Um, And after a year, he kind of uh, reappeared, but fully uh, advocating that he's no longer interested in Christ. So something happened within that, within that year where he counted the cost and he decided that uh, it was too high of a price to pay. And so he's no longer uh, pursuing Christ. But that was a, definitely a clear violent uh, prevention of this man trying to come to the Lord. Uh, another person just recently, a month ago or so, maybe two months by now, uh, was he was a radical Muslim Uh wearing a long beard black beard um he lived in the states for a while moved back to to bosnia in in the states he was extremely radical and he tried to convert people to islam and um one lady gave him the nickname jesus because he had long hair and long beard and blue eyes and she thought he looked kind of like jesus so she called him jesus and he didn't mind because jesus is a prophet according to him at the time um and so he moved back and uh, he started hanging out with the wrong, well, with the right crowd at the time. But then one thing led to another. I don't have time to share his conversion story, but he became a follower of Christ on his own in his living room. Just bowed down and um, uh, trimmed his beard. Didn't completely shave it, but he got it nice and trim, cut his hair uh, short, and the people started, getting, um, no, started noticing he looked different. He would still go to the mosque and pray, believe it or not, even after giving his life to the Lord in his living room for a little while, but he started increasingly feeling bad about doing that. And eventually he started stopped going to the mosque. And one thing led to another. People found out what happened. And one night um, he heard a knock on his door at two o'clock in the morning. And he was wondering, uh, he has a neighbor downstairs and he thought maybe the neighbor is knocking to see if maybe there's a leak. Like his pipes might be busted or something, and he opens the door, and three or four guys with masks walk in, and they they cut him 27 times, and um, tell him that uh, you know if he keeps going down the path he's going, he will lose his lose his life. He since then uh, moved to one a different town, and our ministry is helping him out. Uh, we found um uh, an apartment for him and we're giving him odd jobs to be able to you know make ends meet and he's now an active member of a of a local baptist church actually and um he still needs a lot of prayer he's physically and emotionally spent but um, he's uh he has not backed backed up like the guy in the first story that's
0: amazing to hear uh after that incident, uh, and if things like that happen, what kind of support can the victim expect in a government like Bosnia from the police or from the oh, local nothing. government?
1: Uh, absolutely nothing. He um, he actually went to the police, if I remember the story correctly. No, I'm sorry. He called the police while he was on the floor uh, bleeding. Uh, they didn't. Cut, like produce a deadly wound, but they just cut him, cut his body, and all over his body. So he was bleeding and lying on the floor. And he called uh, first. He called the police, and then he called 911, the Bosnian version of 911. He waited for like 45 minutes, maybe an hour, bleeding on the floor, which shows you again how organized the uh, the system is. And then the cops showed up, and I don't think the ambulance ever showed up. This part is a little bit foggy to me. Um, and even when he tells a story it's not very clear maybe he just doesn't remember it very well well but he was cut do, 27 times and it. bleeding he can be yeah, forgiven yeah 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 so it gets a little foggy but as far as i remember him telling me is that the ambulance never showed up but the cops did and the cops basically said don't even try to fight this like don't even try to to you know um, make charge the like like sue these people or charge these people of any crimes And as far as I know, they left and he had to like, like somehow bandage his own wounds. And then the next day he walked to the hospital himself and they fixed him. But uh, bottom line is these cops did not help him at all. And later on, he found out that one of the Wahhabis, not the guy that cut him, but one of the people, excuse me, when I say Wahhabi, radical Muslims, uh, one of the radical Muslims brother is good friends with the police chief in that town hmm. and so bottom line is he he could not have gone anywhere or complained to anyone he would not have received any help from uh the official authorities so basically they, they, he had two three choices one is recant christ out his beard become a radical muslim again Two, uh stay in that town and high chance about 95 to a 100% chance that he will get seriously injured or killed, or three, move to another town and look for help. <laughs> from. And so he chose uh, point number three, and uh, that's why he's living now uh, close to where our ministry was.
0: Okay. And is that so no. kind of s- situation uh, unique to Christians in Bosnia, or is that kind of a generalized Lack of effectiveness slash corruption.
1: Among- it's a general state of affairs. Yeah. Yeah. If that same thing happened to a Serb in a Muslim majority town, he would have a very hard time getting rights, getting his rights and vice versa. If if a Muslim was living in a Serb majority town, basically the system permits uh, the Machiavellian law of whoever has the power can uh, wield it over you. Um, so it's not necessarily against Christians but Christians are just caught up in that same vicious uh, political system that everybody else is but so they are Christians the most,
0: are one of the disempowered you know, groups
1: they're yeah they're they're basically they don't have a safe haven like Muslims can go to Muslim majority town and pretty much be okay but Christians don't have a locality where they're in, in the majority so wherever they go they're very much marginalized but It's not unique to them. It's just they're one of the most marginalized groups.
0: It's not until I hear stories like that, and I lived briefly in the Middle East, uh, but it's not until I hear stories like that that I realize how much I take for granted the concept of rule of law. So let me ask you this. For either Christians or Romani or... Jews, people who are not kind of part of the three major ethnicities, ethnic groups that share power there. Um, is there a history of activism? Is there any kind of tradition of civic empowerment or engagement? Um, what are, how do they respond to this kind of situation, uh, or this structure, uh, personally, emotionally, and practically?
1: Well, it, now that you're asking this question, I am reminded of a, of an interesting uh, dynamic. Uh, in the last two years, so basically, if you're not one of those three groups, like I said, you cannot be part of the government. But there's this strange coalition between uh, Jacob Finci, a Bosnian Jew, and can't remember the Roma guy's name, but the Romani guy, they're, they're, so they formed their own little, like uh, uh, I don't know, bipartisan uh, group. They're not recognized by the government, and they don't have a uh, constitutional right to be a party, but they formed one anyway. <laughs> hmm. um, and you can Google it. It's Jacob fincy and this this other guy. I can't remember his name offhand. And... Um, And now they're like trying to get the constitution to be changed so that they can actually participate in in the government. And they get quite a bit of uh, press, actually, because nobody likes these other three guys. And so any alternative is like, great, I'll take a gypsy and a Jew over these three (laughs) buttheads any day. You know what I'm saying? So they actually are, they're interested, interesting, and they form this, this counter movement. But evangelicals are non-existent in, in that the, uh, conversation. So, just as we were thinking, I was, uh, talking, I, I, I didn't even think about these other two groups. I was just majorly focusing on evangelicals and these free majority groups. But the 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 Roma's and the and the Gypsies actually are um, doing something about it.
0: <laughs> and you me- you mentioned a phrase that really jumped out at me. You said constitutional right to be a party. Uh, yes. So the constitution actually identifies, uh, is it by ethnicity, by religion? What does the Constitution? The three parties are actually baked into the constitutional system?
1: Yes, that is correct. That's... You can Google that as well. But you asked the interesting question that only an American would ask. Are they based on ethnicity or religion? Mm-hmm. You put an or there. Uh, there is no or, unfortunately. Basically, if you are Serb, you are an Orthodox. So if you are, I don't know, Japanese, you're required to be um, Shinto or something. (laughs) So they they cannot, in Bosnian context, they cannot separate the two. You can't be a Serb Catholic, impossible. Um, So you have to be a Serb Orthodox, you have to be a Catholic Croat, you have to be a Bosnian Muslim, which is hugely complicated because religion and nationality Are one and the same thing Hmm. and so yes uh, constitutionally um, uh, I'm not a scholar on that but I've lived there long enough to and read more uh, newspaper articles than I need to and heard more debates on TV than I needed to Uh, you are only part of the dialogue if you're one of those three groups but there's this alternative voice that's got started just a few years ago uh, between a coalition formed between a Jew and a Roma um, but again, evangelicals are not even close to beginning a dialogue, much less participate.
0: And that's interesting. And so, I, had, according to Scripture, Christ's church draws people to it from every tribe, nation, and tongue, uh, and people from all nations will be worshiping side by side when the kingdom comes. Uh, yep. So it's to actually accept the gospel in Bosnia means breaking with your legally mandated religious affiliation or at the very least willfully letting go of any access you might have in that country to political power because you're no longer conforming to one of the three things you are allowed to be.
1: That's correct. That's that Blows your mind,
0: doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. I mean, it's um, it's strange for me, having been born and raised in a system where parties are strictly, ostensibly ideological in nature. And I mean, what right. ideology they're committed to shifts decade by decade, but uh, where parties are voluntary... Uh, activist groups, uh, that form around accomplishing particular goals, uh, right. rather than protecting religious. particular ethnic yeah. or religious groups, um, right. or ethno-religious groups. Right. Um, so I know you were in the U. You were born in Bosnia, then you were in the U.S. for a while, then you went back to Bosnia as a missionary. Uh, what was the hardest thing for you to adjust to in that back and forth
1: um the hardest thing to adjust to the back and forth well um it's it's a little bit less of a back and forth uh than than you think because i left bosnia when i was 10 years old and i didn't get back to bosnia until i was 30 20 years later (laughs) so a lot has happened in between um I would say, going back to Bosnia, it was, I was expecting it to be hard. I was not in no la-la land thinking it's going to be great, like a lot of missionaries do. Um, but it was even harder than I expected um, because of these entrenched dynamics that are uh, barring the gospel to even have a hearing, much less... Be accepted. So, in my time there, I saw uh, maybe six or seven people accept the Lord. Um, Two or three of them I was directly involved in. But that's over nine years, like eight years, eight and a half years. It's less than one salvation a year (laughs) that I was part of. And, And I know nationwide you're talking about a couple of dozen. So, it's a very, very, very hard. And, and I'm not the only one saying this. You, you ask you know, 20 different missionaries, they'll pretty much tell you the same thing. Uh, it's a very tough land to, to share the gospel. However, now that I've seen both worlds, um, even though the Christians there are broken, uh, they don't have a lot of the tools and the books and the counseling and the whatever we have, lights, camera, action. But... There is a simplicity and a depth and a humility in particular to their faith that I find more Christ-like than some of the pompous imperialism that I see with a lot of very, very wealthy, rich, uh, prosperity gospel Christians in in the American West. (laughs) Let
0: me ask you this. How has your experience in Bosnia as an adult changed the way you think about politics and government as a u.s citizen
1: it's just that that helplessness that that you know that peter and paul must have felt like like what the heck are you gonna do against the romans you know like they could just come walk into your house and kill you and who are you gonna complain to you know you got nowhere to go you just really have to trust that god's gonna provide the the money in the mouth of the fish um and so like being in Bosnia, I've been really trained in helplessness. <laughs> hmm. Experiencing utter helplessness where you cannot uh, complain to anyone. You can't write a letter to your to your governor, your senator. You can't call a hotline. You can't protest, really. You, you'll be laughed at. Um, and you're just kind of like yeah, I'm going to go vote, but it's really meaningless. So the meaninglessness and the helplessness of the political uh, world that you live in kind of like shakes you awake, wakes you up, that when you get back to the States, you see these activists and you have a hard time believing that what they're doing is actually making a difference you're almost like like pavlov's dog you hear the the bell and you start salivating and you're like you know what i just have a feeling these politicians are just kind of like smiling and uh, like laughing at these people with posters and banners because they can't do anything anyway because we are in control we'll let we'll let them think they're in control Uh, but, but they really are. not so being in Bosnia for so long, it makes me feel like that. It makes me feel like, you know, I don't really have any power that I can wield to make a difference or make or change things, which I also know intellectually is not true, but emotionally, that's what it feels like.
0: And I think that's something a lot of people can probably sympathize with feeling. I felt that
1: way plenty myself. There is a degree of truth to that. But the way I look at it is if God has – if here's another thing I learned in Bosnia, God's sovereignty. Um, I don't think we believe as Western Christians that God is sovereign. I mean that with all of my heart. I really don't think we believe God is sovereign. Hmm. We think we're sovereign and God is sovereign maybe (laughs) if we let him. Um, and what you learn in these countries where you cannot believe that because the system doesn't let you you cannot make sure that your kid is going to go to college you're not sure if you're going to get justice or right, you know if you vote it's not going to really work, so you're like kind of helpless um, and so you feel that you're not sovereign in your life, and so therefore you're going to look for sovereignty in somewhere in another place, and then You learn God is the sovereign one. He is, unless he does the healing, unless he does the saving, unless he does the governing, nothing's going to happen. And so I learned sovereignty. All right, so with that little background, if God is sovereign, which he is, um, then he also orchestrates everything, including my right to, my right, my God-given right, to be involved to the degree that I'm able so I, I feel like if I, if I moved back to the States, um, if I lived in a little whatever, some town in uh, Tennessee, um, to the degree that I'm able, because I have been given the, 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 by the sovereign God of the universe the right to get involved, I would do it. Not necessarily because my action, my vote, my banner Will make an actual difference in the in the physical realm, but it makes a I believe spiritual uh, statement, spiritual statement um, that I can make in that moment. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is, is just like make- God is sovereign. He gives you the right to do stuff. Uh, when you do these things, even if they don't have an actual uh, result, you are. Uh, uh, this is really true. What I'm about to say, you are. Um, um manifesting in your actions God's the reality of God's sovereignty and thereby giving him glory. Hmm. You are actually worshiping God by exercising he, the rights that he's given you to exercise. You're, right, you're saying it's him who did, did it. He, he gave it to me. If I was born in Africa, if I was born in Bosnia, I wouldn't have these rights. I wouldn't be able to do these things. But because I'm able to do them, uh that somebody gave them to me. The somebody is God. And therefore, if I do these things, I recognize that God is sovereign. He gave them to me. And therefore, I do end up doing something that we're supposed to be doing, and that's worshiping God. So, in a sense, voting could be worshiping God.
0: All right. Thanks for sticking around. We are out of time. There was a lot in there, but we'll be back soon to follow up and take it all a bit further. In the meantime, if you want to help us get these episodes out more quickly, then please consider becoming a monthly supporter. We're currently looking for 30 more monthly supporters at the Center for Christian Civics. We're looking for 10 supporters at $25 a month, 10 at $50 a month, and $10 at $100 a month. And this is to help us start hiring some full-time staff members. And everyone who's made a contribution to the Center for Christian Civics of any size in the past year is going to be getting a special bonus episode of this podcast later in July. So if you want to get that, head to our website, christiancivics.org, and make a one-time donation of any size You still have one more week before we send that out. We're sending it out in the last week of July. I'm Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Thank you very much for being with us this week. And be sure to visit ChristianCivics.org to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.